In case uh, you missed the first service, I want to introduce our speaker today. Uh, Shane Wood uh, is with us. He's from Ozark Christian College. He's been a teacher there at the college for seven years, uh, teaching the book of Acts, teaching the book of Revelation, just a number of other subjects. And uh, we're happy to have him here today. He's a father of four children. He has his oldest here today, Zion. So we're happy that he is here Uh, Would you welcome Shane Wood as he comes? All right. Well, thank you. Uh, Those of you that weren't here first hour, um, you're lucky. Uh, And those of you that came back, you're gluttons for punishment. I don't really know what to say. Uh, But I will summarize a little bit what we talked about the first hour. Uh, The first hour, basically the point was this. If we're going to call ourselves Christians... We should actually be known for what Jesus was known for. We should be doing the things that Jesus was doing. Because as, what was, as was mentioned, He is our Savior. But He's not just our Savior. He's also our Lord. And whenever He is your Lord, it demands stuff from you. It demands things from you. And our lives should look like His. And the, kind of the theme verse of the first hour was 1 John 2.6. For if anyone claims... To live in Jesus, they must walk as Jesus walked. They must walk as Jesus walked. And I think on some level we can amen that simple point. This is when it gets awkward. This is when it gets a little bit uncomfortable. I'm actually really, really glad that the text that I was given to me, I'm preaching it after offering. Because then I can't be accused of anything. Because I'm not making a dime off this anyway. I told Zion, I was like, I'm going to talk about something uncomfortable, but luckily, I don't get paid here. They're not, what are they going to do, fire me? I was like, okay. It's like, we're leaving here in a bit anyway, so I guess you can throw stuff at me as we leave, but that's about it. But it gets, it gets a little awkward whenever you do, we read uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 47, and we asked the question, how is this possible? And it says, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It's a little awkward whenever you go just a couple verses before it. Like verse 44. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Here's my question. How many of you have that highlighted or underlined in your Bible? Like two or three. Tops. And even that one was like, and I'm the only one. (laughs) There's something I call highlighter theology, and I find it very dangerous. Uh, Rich Mullins, actually, there was this concert. He was playing up at Wheaton College. Um, Rich Mullins was a singer-songwriter in the 90s. His music was prophetic, and there's really no other way to describe it. He wrote Our God is an Awesome God, even though that's an amazing song. It's not even my favorite song of his. My favorite song of his is called Hold Me, Jesus. But if you've ever seen Rich live, and I had the, the benefit as a sophomore in high school to see him three months before he died in concert, the, the most amazing parts of the concert is not just his music. It's what he said in between the songs. He'd be sitting there and he'd be playing the piano when he was at Wheaton College. He's, he's playing the piano in between songs and he says, you know, you, you view in the restoration movement, he says, I, I like you guys. You take the Bible seriously. He says, you know, you know, the Bible says, you know, repent and be baptized, every one of you. And you take that seriously. You actually baptize people. And then he plays the piano a little bit more. And he goes, you know, the Bible also says, sell everything and give it to the poor. 
And he goes, but hey, I guess that's why we have highlighters. And he just kept moving. And it bothered me when he said that. Because I was kind of like, wait a minute, what does that mean? And I started wrestling with this fact. As a matter of fact, whenever I would teach my class Matthew at Ozark, we would come to the rich young ruler in chapter 19, where it says, sell everything and give it to the poor. And I would ask the question to them that I asked to you. How many of you have that highlighted in your Bibles? I've never once had a single student raise their hand. Never once. And those classes are not small. 50 to 70 students in a classroom and multiple times I've taught it, not once have they had highlighted or underlined in their Bible, sell everything and give it to the poor. Here's the danger of highlighters and pens in a Bible. Is that in some way you can make Jesus say whatever you want. And here's part of the challenge I want to give you this morning. Definitely pay attention to what you have highlighted, but why don't you try to live by what you don't have highlighted? Because it's really simple to highlight things in your Bible that Jesus says, and then it kind of are the things that appeal to you most. But whenever he starts talking about my money, I'm not highlighting that. It's my money, Jesus. I earned it. These stinking preachers getting up here asking for our money. I'm telling you right now, I don't make a living off the dime you just put in, your, in, in the coffer. I, I just don't. What I'm more concerned about is your heart and what it means to actually be the church. And so I love the fact that offering's over because we can, we're not going to have a second offering appeal. But I'm going to take these two verses pretty seriously. And we're going to talk about them, and it'll probably get uncomfortable. I was joking with Kevin, I was like, man... Whenever you gave me the text for the week, I was like, oh, that was pretty shrewd. During an election year, give the sell everything to the long-haired hippie. That's awesome. (laughs) That's going to go over wonderful. Here's the thing I find fascinating. Our churches, our movement, the restoration movement, was known for wanting to return back to the Bible time. How it is that they taught, how it is they preached, what it is they believed. To take seriously what the New Testament is saying, and to live that out. And in many ways, we do it well. And then there's other ways we do it really poorly. And this is one of those ways. I mean, whenever I talk about sell everything and give it to the poor, the altar calls are not robust. (laughs) People are not crowding the front. You all sell everything. Now you mess with people's money, and you'll get an earful or an eyeful. That's normally the way it works. And yet it's in the Bible, not just once. It's not even in Acts just once. Turn to Acts chapter 4, verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. Wow, we should just stop right there and preach from that verse. Just that first half. There's something about unity that we're missing in the American churches. There's just something about unity. We create things to fight about. It's pretty incredible to me. We literally, and I, and I mean this as literally as I can because I've actually talked to somebody two weeks ago that left the church over the color of the carpet. And I used to metaphorically call these carpet color issues, but it's not a metaphor. It's actual reality. We will get mad at anything. And we divide over it. Which is startling to me. You would think if people like us, that are bound by the blood of Jesus, that out of everybody in this world that exists, that we could figure out a way to disagree and still stay unified. And yet, we're the worst at it. 
My goodness, do you know what it's like to be fighting on the front lines and catch an arrow in the back? It's pretty frustrating, actually. And whenever I'm sitting there and I'm talking to people and literally they're complaining about the carpet color, or my goodness, I won't even talk about the worship music. Hello. I don't even know what's going on here at this church, but I would guess there's probably some issues on the worship side. Why? Because every church I have been in over the last seven years speaking, I say one thing about worship and there's... (laughs) It makes me wonder if we've forgotten who we are. And I ask this question sometimes. I said, I wonder if the underground church of China argues about the same things we argue about. I just wonder if they're splitting over carpet color issues. Probably not, because they understand the mission is life and death. And when you lose eyes of the mission, you lose your identity and you start doing things that do not line up with Jesus. They just don't. It's the log in the eye effect. You know what I'm talking about? We're clobbering each other with logs on our faces. So it starts off and it says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. How amazing that can be. And then it says this. It's almost like this is a consequence. Unity is a consequence. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Weird Christians. Bunch of communists. Sharing everything. Listen, this isn't communism. It's called community. And there's a major difference. Communism says, hey, what's yours is mine. I'm going to take it. Community says, hey, what's mine is yours. I'm going to give it to you. It's a big difference. Communism is based off of belief in no God at all. Community is based off of who Jesus is. And what he did. I mean, the, the, the communion meditation from Philippians 2 have the same attitude of Christ Jesus. Okay, what did Jesus do? <laughs> he, gave, he emptied himself so that he could become flesh. And then when he came here, he didn't even demand to be worshipped as a king. Every time I preach a wedding, I have the same text. Every time. Mark ten forty five, Every time. And I look at the couple that's in front of me and I say, listen. If you ever start fighting for yourself, everyone loses. He said, even the Son of Man did not come here to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And if your marriage does that, you guys are going to be fine. Communication will become easier. All of these things that married people normally fight about, a lot of times you won't. Why? Because you're fighting for the other person. Marriages dissolve when somebody starts to fight for themselves. Frankly, churches dissolve when you start fighting for yourself. Honestly, countries dissolve when you fight for yourself. But if you have the same attitude as Christ Jesus, not only is unity possible, but everyone is taken care of. Even physically, no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. But they shared everything they had. Even skip down to the, the, the second half of verse 33. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. God's grace was at work in them all. And how do we know? Verse 34. That there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them. Brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. How many of us have that highlighted in our Bibles? 
isn't this weird? I mean, there's one of the things that kind of strikes me as, I don't know if it's amusing, it's, it's a bit uh, troubling. But when it comes to passages like this, like Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 2, or Matthew 19 with a rich young ruler, that even though I pre- preach in the richest country in the history of the world, it's amazing how these passages apply to none of us. I find it really weird. Where it's like, how can this apply to no one? Normally what we do is we undercut its application before we allow it really to hit us hard. We'll do stuff like this. Well, I mean, I mean, it doesn't mean exactly to do that. It doesn't mean, you know, I mean, what it means is I just need to give all of my time. And I'm, hey, I agree with that. But no, this is actually talking about money stuff. It's actually saying this. There's something about our witness that we lose. If someone down the pew from you goes home not knowing if they're going to eat every day this week. There's something we have lost. We don't obviously understand who Jesus is if we're okay with that in our churches. I'm not even talking about yet those on the outside of the church. I'm talking about in the pews. If there are people down the row from you that may not have electricity this week, that may not be able to eat every day this week, and we can go and share at a table and then go home as if everything's okay, we have lost. And we wonder why verse 47 is so troubling in chapter 2. Why it's so difficult that God was adding people to their numbers daily. Why? Because physically and spiritually they were finding healing. And it amazes me that this is controversial in the church. How is it possible that controversy can be stirred whenever someone says, even with your wealth, do what Jesus did? Even with your wealth, do what Jesus did. And yet, I can hear the tomatoes coming out of their bags ready to be thrown. And I refuse to water down the application I genuinely think that some of us need to wrestle with whether or not we have too much. Why? It's kind of a big deal throughout the New Testament. I mean, think of James chapter 1, verse 1, where he says, Woe to the rich for your low position, but blessed are the poor because of their high position. What is he saying? Here's the problem. When it comes to faith, you have to be used to relying on something that's bigger than yourself. And the rich just aren't real good at that. I mean, if we were hungry, what do we do because we're rich? We go out and buy food. If our clothes aren't what we want them to be, what do we do? We go buy more clothes. We don't have to rely on anything if we don't want to. We can just rely on ourselves. That's why Jesus says, when it comes to a rich person, it's like a camel getting through the eye of a needle. It's a tough one. Because they don't, they're not good at the one thing you have to be good at to be a Christian, and that's relying on that which is beyond you. It's called faith. It's called faith. Now, it, now, Jesus isn't saying it's impossible for rich. Why? He says, no, anything's possible with God. That's the point. Transformation can even happen for us rich people. That's a good thing. That's a healthy thing. That's an exciting thing. But man, God's not messing around when it comes to this wealth stuff. Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 and following. Church of Laodicea. Oh my. Jesus gets rowdy. He looks at him and he says, I know your deeds. Now listen. 
if you're doing good stuff and you see that in red letters, that's awesome. Like, I know your deeds. You're like, oh, Jesus knows what I'm doing. I'm doing good stuff. That's sweet. You're doing bad stuff? Those four words are terrifying. I know your deeds. And he looks at the church that I see and he says, oh, man, you're neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm. He says, I wish you were one or the other. But because you're lukewarm, he says, I'm about to convulsively vomit you out of my mouth. Whoa, Jesus, what's going on? Look what happened to the seeker-sensitive Jesus? Why is he getting so upset at them? He says in the very next verse, he says, oh, because you say, I am rich and I do not need a thing. Church Laodicea did say that, actually. In AD 62, the entire church was wiped out by an earthquake. And Rome, like a good government, comes to the church and they say, hey, we'll give you funds to rebuild your city. And Laodicea said, thanks. No, thanks. <laughs> We're so rich. We'll rebuild our city bigger and better without your money. And they did. And Jesus says, here's the problem. You're saying that to me spiritually. You don't even need me. And Jesus says, oh, I wish you really did have eyes to see. He said, because when I look at you, actually, you're pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Not rich like you thought you were. When it comes to wealth, the Bible's pretty clear. We just don't want it to say that, so we rely on our highlighters. To, you know, kind of craft Jesus into our own image. There's nothing more terrifying than Jesus looking just like you. That's even what I was telling Zion, because, you know, people will say, if I, if I pulled out my little ponytail here, my hair's pretty long, because I have a beard, they're like, oh, you look like Jesus. I told Zion, I said, listen, buddy, first of all, Jesus is so much better than me. Second of all, he was not a white guy. <laughs> like, third of all, if the most I look like Jesus is my hair and my beard, I have failed. Totally failed. People should even be able to look at my pocketbook and know who I belong to. They just should. And yet when it comes with our relationship to the poor, even the people sitting right across from you, the reality is we have none. We've done an amazing way of insulating ourselves so that we don't even have to really deal with the conviction of the fact that people go to sleep every night without basic water needs. We've done a great job. Matter of fact, I call this sociologically murdering people. I mean, this is what I mean. Whenever you've seen, heard maybe of somebody, not you, someone else, driving a car, they come up to a stoplight, and there's a person on the side of the road holding up a cardboard sign. Not you, but what do other people normally do? What do they normally do? <laughs> Look away. Keep going. Just don't make eye contact. Oh, the radio needs flipped. Oh, I better look at something on my phone. Oh, yeah, what's over there? It's a bird. And sociologically, the person doesn't even exist. Doesn't even exist. And they just move on. If you ever read Matthew 25, it's pretty startling. Sheep and the goats, they're separated on the great day of the coming of the Son of Man. Do you know why they're separated into one that receives the kingdom and one that does not? Do you know what he points to? Because whenever I was naked, you clothed me. Well done. Here's the kingdom. Whenever I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was a stranger, you ministered to me. Thank you. 
And he looks at the other goats, the goats, the other group, and he says, um, you are going where there are weeping and gnashing of teeth. Whoa. Why, Jesus? Because when I was thirsty, you didn't give me anything to drink. <laughs> when I was naked, you didn't clothe me. And whenever I was in prison, you never visited me. When I was a stranger, you did not minister to me. And they're like, when did we not? When did, when, where's that you? We didn't see you. He says, well, what you've done to the least of these, you've done to me. And here's the fascinating thing about this passage. Here's the fascinating thing about Matthew 25. Both groups are actually surprised. Whenever he's talking to the sheep and he's like, well done. And they're like, wait a minute, when did we see you? I mean, when did we give you a drink? When did we help? When did we do this for you? And Jesus says, it's what you were doing to the least of these. And they were kind of like, okay. They were shocked. They didn't even know. Why? Because doing that stuff was as natural as breathing for them. Because when you're transformed to the likeness of Christ, you just find yourself hanging out with broken people. It's just what you do. Why? That's what he did. Even when we were his enemy, he died for us. I mean, where's Jesus? He's hanging out at a well with a woman that's, you know, a Samaritan woman, an outcast. That's who it is. I mean, where is Jesus? He's hanging out with the lepers. Where's Jesus? He's hanging out with these ragtag group of outcasts known as fishermen and zealots. Who are we hanging out with? What are we doing to walk in the sandals that Jesus walked in? Listen, when it comes to the poor, there is a very special heart or place in the heart of God for them. And if we are truly transformed into his image, it should translate. It should look the same. As a matter of fact, turn to Isaiah chapter 1. This may be the most rowdy passage in the entire Bible. God just, he just kind of takes off the gloves and starts swinging. Isaiah chapter 1 is very uncomfortable. As if the rest of the sermon's been wonderful. Um, Isaiah chapter 1, we'll start in verse 10. He's talking to the nation of Israel, by the way. He's talking to his own people. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Hello. He's talking to Israel. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Whoo. If you know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, you realize you don't want to be called that, especially if you're God's people. The multitude of your sacrifices, well, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams and, and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all of my being. Hello. They've become a burden to me. And I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. What is God? God so upset. Keep reading. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. 
Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless and plead the case of the widow. You see why he's so mad? It's actually not just, it'd be so simple for me to say, if you do these things, God's happy. No, you're missing the point. They're about ready, they're they're in exile. And he's saying, the reason why you're in exile is because whenever you did this, this is how the Jews would pray. They would hold their hands up to God. He says, when you would do this, you have blood on your hands. Do you not know who I am? As a matter of fact, that's how Isaiah 1 begins. He says, the issue is not your deeds. The issue is, you don't know me. Verse 2, hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, but my children don't know me. The donkey its owner's manger, but my children don't know me. But Israel does not know me. My people do not understand who I am. Because if you knew who God was, there is no way you would come with the hands or your, your hands filled with the blood of the innocent. There is no way you would neglect the fatherless. There is no way that you would neglect the poor because of you knowing who He is. It's easy to say in theory, man, if, you know, if Jesus did these things, we need to do them. But whenever you start to have the rubber meet the road, it becomes really uncomfortable. Because God's saying, listen, you need to do to the, to the world what I did for you. You want your numbers to grow daily? Love them with as zealous of a passion as I loved you. The problem is we are plagued with inconvenience. And people are difficult. And dealing with somebody that's caught in a cycle of poverty will take a lot of time. And you will experience a lot of heartbreak. And in those moments, you will feel just like God. Who on a daily basis is pursuing us. The poor and the wretched and the pitiful. On a daily basis, we disappoint Him. The early church was, this was their number one evangelistic tool. Tertullian, an early church father, says this about their offerings. He says, for the funds are not taken and spent on feasts and drinking bouts and eating houses, but to support and bury poor people. Because no one would bury them. They would just be left out in a common grave for the animals to devour. But Christians say no. They deserve dignity because God created them in their image. And they matter. He says the money is used to supply the wants of boys and girls destitute of means and parents. And of old persons confined to the house. Such too is offered shipwreck. And if there happen to be any in the mines or banished to the islands or shut up in the prisons for nothing but their faithfulness to the cause of Christ, they become nurslings of their confession. Julian in the 4th century, he was an emperor. He writes this letter to one of his officials and he is angry. He says, these stinking Galileans. That's what he called the Christians. He says, the problem is, is that everyone knows they outlove us in every area. For he says, and I quote, That they take care of our poor, not just their own. And everyone saw this lavish love that was so incomprehensible, that was so magnificent, that even the outcast of a society found their place and their home in the church. Who are we 
Who are we? Some people, I have a friend who's known nationwide for this zeal for loving the poor. And he was asked once by a student in one of my classes, and my student said, okay, but whenever you're talking about, you know, helping the poor and stuff like that, he says, you know, I'm just always afraid to, like, give a handout to them. Like, if I'm driving up to them, I don't really want to give them 20 bucks because I don't know if they're going to spend it on booze or on drugs or whatever. And my friend, my friend responded back by saying two things. He said, first of all, he goes, I, I totally understand. He said, now, I do find it interesting that no one asks the same questions about the CEO of Walmart whenever they buy stuff there. He goes, but number two, if you knew their story, you wouldn't have to question what they're going to spend it on. Problem is, in the church, we don't even know their names. We don't even know the names of the impoverished. We don't even know where to find them in our cities, but I can promise you they're in every city. Jesus even said they would be. You'll always have the poor among you, which means you can always be faithful to who I am. He wasn't saying that so that it was just like, oh, you always have the poor, it doesn't really matter. No, 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 he's saying you always have an opportunity to be faithful. It's amazing to me how we're smothered with wealth and it puts us in this very vulnerable position and we have the audacity to look at our wealth and say, what a blessing. Listen, it's only a blessing if it doesn't damn you to hell. You know what I mean? Very quickly, what can be used as a blessing can turn into a curse. Because it's like getting a camel through the eye of a needle for a rich person to understand that God demands even their hard-earned money. And I have found that money is a blessing most whenever it's used to heal the broken. Money is the blessing most when it is used to, to reach out to the least of these. I don't even know what some of you are saying. Wait a minute. Why are, why are we just talking about their bodies and not just their souls? I have a couple responses to that. Number one, sometimes it's hard to hear the message to the soul whenever your stomach is growling too loudly. Feed the stomach so the soul can be fed. Number two, whenever you feed their mouths, it's amazing how open they are to listening to what it is you have to say. Number three, you're not just a body or a soul, you're both. And Christ came to redeem everything that's broken, not just half. All of it. See, because Christ says this, Genesis 3 will not have a single victory. And poverty is a result of Satan's victory. It's going down. He's saying, no, everything that's broken, your body, your soul, your present, your past, your future, everything will be restored because of the cross and the resurrection. And whenever the church gets this and the church ignites and they start learning the stories of those around them in community and in unity, and they start learning the needs that are sitting just down the pew or right down the road. And they start pooling their resources and healing the physical brokenness. What amazing thing happens is verse 47 of chapter 2. That God adds to their number daily. Daily. But it's amazing to me how when it comes to Acts chapter 2, we want verse 47 but we just don't want to embrace verses 44 and 45. Can't have 47 without those two. So let me read them in order. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. You'll get to know people if you're actually hanging out with them. 
They broke bread in their homes. There's nothing more intimate than sharing a meal in a home. And ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And then, as a result, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is what I've come to say today. Jesus is our Savior and our Lord. He's both. And it's amazing when you're sitting across the, uh, the table of somebody and you're staring them in the eyes and you start talking about their story, even if you've just bought them a meal because they couldn't afford it, it's amazing how much of their life actually begins to pour out and you can introduce them to the healer. It's kind of, I mean, if I'm already making people mad, I might as well just take it one step further. Um, it's kind of like, I really wish this is the way the church would have handled the homosexual issue. Instead of merely lobbing bombs at them, why not ask them this question? What's your story? Where'd you grow up? Who are your parents? What's the first time you remember laughing? What's the first time you remember crying? And as those questions start to come out, you realize that whatever sin they're in, it's merely a symptom of something that's way deeper that's broken. Problem is, we want to put a band-aid on a symptom and think we've cured the person. Same thing with the poor. It's amazing to me. Our perspective of the poor we lived in Edinburgh, Scotland for around three months. Uh, and, and we were there. This was about, what, seven years ago, Zion? You were around five. Is that right? But we had this lady that we would go by every single day, and she would sit on the steps of the church there in downtown Edinburgh. Sit on the steps of the church, and her name was Rebe- Rebecca. Now, we found out her name later, but she couldn't even speak any English. We, it took a long time for us to even to understand what her name was. But every single day, every single day, we would pass Rebecca, my daughter, at the time, she would have only been like four, three or four. She would take a coin, and she would hold it out, and she'd put it in Rebecca's cup, and Rebecca would grab her hand, and she would kiss it every day. And one time we, were, we had some people visiting us while we were in Scotland. They were close family. They were Christians. And we were coming up where Rebecca was at, and they didn't know we had a relationship with her. We, they didn't know we had been loving her and would stop and talk with her and bring her food and, and just sit down on the step with her. And she got up and started walking away from where she was sitting. And the person next to me said, oh, I guess she's done from her job today. And I, 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 it was really awkward because I was kind of like, what is that supposed to mean? I'm like, do we have any idea where Rebecca was getting up and what she was walking back to? I mean, do we have any idea why it is that somebody with can't even speak English is in an English-speaking country? Do you know what brought them there? Do we know if she's going back to a cardboard box? Do we know if she's going back to a pimp? Do we know anything about her story? And yet it's amazing how when we see somebody on the side of the road, this is what we assume. They're lazy. Get a job. It's easy to say that whenever you have one. It's easy to say that whenever you have the education level that we do. Bottom line is, not everybody gets that. It's kind of like somebody said, like, well, everybody should be able to pull, their, pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. I said, what if they don't have any boots? <laughs> then what do we do? I take Philippians 2 really seriously because this is whenever Christ found me impoverished, 
This is what he did. I will use all that's in my advantage to bring you up. I will not consider being equality with God something to be used to my own advantage to cling to. I will empty myself, kenosis, empty myself, becoming flesh and becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, so that you can be risen up. I will go down so you can come up. And he says, so get baptized so that you can go down and then help bring others up. If we're going to take the first six letters of the name Christian seriously, it's going to have to affect everything. I tell my students in class, I said, listen, we spend like three weeks. Do I have any Ozark students in here? Have you guys ever taken classes with me? Yes. How long do we take on the syllabus? A long time. You can even see it's like a week and a half. And the reason why is because everything in the syllabus, what do I say? Every single thing in the syllabus, there's a theology behind it, right? So we talk about 20 minutes on why I don't allow cell phones in my classes. Why? Because I'm sorry, you're not supposed to be omnipresent. But it's amazing how a cell phone, if somebody texts you, they expect you to respond right away. I'm not supposed to be able to be everywhere at every location at all times. It might take me a day or two to get back to you. Why? Because God is omnipresent, not me. And I will not feel the burden to be. And we talk about why it is that so many in our society are overwhelmed with despair and with with depression. I'm not just talking about chemical imbalances. I'm talking about being asked to be someone that you're not supposed to be. Everything in our lives should have theology that's fueling it. And your entire life, whether we're talking about cell phone usage, whether we're talking about what it is that you do throughout the week, how it is you speak at a school, how it is that you speak at your work, what it is that you're paying attention to whenever you are walking past somebody that is broken, everything in your life, even down to your pocketbook, should be in submission to Christ. Otherwise, what are we doing here? What, I don't know what game it is we think we're playing. But I, I don't know what we're doing here. If our entire lives are not saturated in the message of the cross. Don't get me wrong, it's very uncomfortable. I'll be honest with you, as I preach this sermon, I convict myself moment by moment. And I'm thankful that I have a God that says, Shane, I love you how you are. But you get to transform more and more into me. And it will be painful. Yes, we will have our own moments of Gethsemane. But you cannot get to an empty tomb if you don't have things that die. I think we should pray. Lord Jesus. Oh, thank you for being a God that is patient. Thank you for being a God that is loving. Thank you for being a God that persistently and furiously, relentlessly pursues us. And I pray, God, that we will do the same to you and that we will do the same to those that are broken around us. Lord God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Give us a passion, Lord, for the broken. Give us a passion, Lord. May we see the world around us through your eyes so that, Father, we can see more clearly where it is that your heart is beating. Father, forgive us when we know not what we're doing. Father, be gracious with us whenever we're afraid to do what we know we need to do. We love you. It's your name we pray.